0: Now for the Sermon of the Day, out of Egypt, I will call my son, by still Well, hello. Beautiful Sabbath day. It's good to see everyone. We're going to miss seeing everyone for a few weeks as we are getting ready to, uh, well, go to Egypt. And uh, in the meeting before our services, Sean was uh, joking with me, saying, "But you haven't even left yet, and now you're talking about coming out of Egypt." And I'm just uh, maybe offering this as, as hope that God will let me come back. So, um, so yeah, no no surprises to maybe some of the inspiration of this message. But Benjamin and I were, were talking about this trip. Uh, I think it was earlier this week, and. He and I love history, but we're not quite as crazy as Joseph and Rene are in the space of Egypt uh, and Egyptology, and, and they, they love it, and they're the experts in our house about, well, everything to do with Egypt, and especially as it connects to the biblical story and the Exodus and all of that good stuff. And um, We were just talking about it, Benjamin and I, and we're, we're starting to figure out, we're pretty excited about this too, and it's going to be a real experience. You know, we've traveled a little bit, we've been able to travel a little bit as a family um, in the past, and that's been a blessing, but it's mainly in the West, right? It's the Western world that we've traveled in. Now we're going to go to a completely different culture, uh, Muslim culture, and stepping on a whole other continent. And John's nodding his head. He's been over that part of the world. He knows what I'm talking about. And so it's just kind of um, exciting and maybe a little scary. Yeah. Um, but we're looking forward to it. But it's interesting, isn't it? Well, I tend to forget, and mayb- maybe you do too, but Jesus was called out of Egypt. You remember that part of the story? It's in uh, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 1, he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So, you know, they're showing up at Herod's court and saying, Hey, where's the king of the Jews? Oh, uh, that's me? No, 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 the real king of the Jews. Right, And they were familiar, of course, with, with the, uh, the prophecy. And So it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the other people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And so they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it was written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, you are not the least among the rulers of of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. What a promise. I mean, what a promise. And you can imagine, you know, how much disruption this caused in the royal court. These, I mean, I kind of subscribe to the idea that these are not wise men, these are, very powerful rulers that have come from the east, from perhaps into Persia and Parthia, and, and they have an entourage with them. I mean, you don't just get an audience with the king because you're coming to Judea on holiday. Hey, let's go see Herod today. No, they're coming with majesty and a procession, and they get an audience with the king. And of course start asking where the real king is. And so then, it says, then Herod when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them that what time the star appeared, and he's trying to figure out okay, what's the timing of all this? When was this, this individual born? And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child, which is interesting, a reminder that it wasn't at the birth of Jesus. It was some time after that, was now a child, possibly around two years old. And, and when you found him, bring word back to me that I may go and worship him as well. Because that's what kings do, right? They, they like to go worship those that are about to replace them. Of course, that's not what he wanted to do. Okay, and then when... Uh, They heard the king, you know, they had the hearing with the king. They departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. And there they saw the star, and they, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him, and then they had opened their treasures and presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Just imagine being Mary for a minute. There's a knock on the door, and then there's all this entourage and these regal figures, and they've just shown up, and they ask to see her child. Uh, Who are you? Okay, And they're, they, they're brought in and they start to worship her son. I mean, quite a moment, right? And then they offer these very powerful gifts, symbols, these gifts of gold for his kingship, frankincense for his priesthood, and myrrh for the anointing of his body, a body that is maybe years old. But an anointing, nonetheless, for that future sacrifice that he's going to be. And then it says, Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, And flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and they departed for Egypt, and and, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son kind of a strange story when you step back and think of it we've we've read it many times we know it but the idea of fleeing to Egypt it's it's incongruent with the narratives of that we get from scripture about free fleeing from Egypt and yet god has this amazing purpose that we'll see in fact <laughs> this is kind of funny but so in part of our uh, trip, um, some of it got changed and, uh, due to a museum not being ready to be open to the public. So uh, we're now going on a um, a holy family tour of sorts. So there's, there's a church and a cave where the holy family stayed when they fled to Egypt. I'm not too sure that's really true. But of course... That kind of doesn't matter, in in some sense, in in some of the churches that that build shrines around these places in the Middle East. But it'll be interesting. I don't know how old the church is, but it's it's pretty old. And there's a cave, and I'm just going to go and enjoy it as, as for what it is. But I doubt very much we really know where the Holy Family, as they call it, went. But we do know that he went to Egypt. And it was a fulfillment of Scripture. We're told that in the account that that Matthew gives us. He says, out of Egypt he will call his son. And we have to ask the question, why Egypt? Given the the historical uh, contrast here that we're, we're looking at, Why Egypt? Why not another part of the world? Why not why not follow the wise men to where they came from, out of the sphere of Herod's influence? Why Egypt and not some other place? Well, in the book of Hosea, from which this prophecy that is referred to comes from in this passage, it first pass doesn't seem like anything to do with Jesus at all, except for maybe one line. But if we dig into it here, we find a multi-layered imagery in Hosea that not only talks about, uh, about Jesus, it talks about Israel, it talks about us, and ultimately it talks about the whole world and what God is doing and will do when Jesus returns. So going to uh, Hosea chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, and this is God speaking, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to Baals, to other gods. They burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. Think about that passage. very poetic. Israel is presented to us as a son, as a child, as God's son. You know, and I love that line that it says, uh, where does he say it here? I taught Ephraim, which is a, was used interchangeably, as we know, for Israel. He says, I taught him to walk. Just have an image of God holding this little little toddler, right, as we've all done, the, the, that have had children. We've walked behind them and helped them to stay balanced and helped them into maturity and helped them grow and loved them, protected them. And that's how God feels towards his people, towards Israel. They are his Peculiar people, as we, we read. They are his children. And he's, he's personified the nation into this single son, just like we would have a son or a daughter in that way. Just beautiful imagery. I remember when the two young men that now live in my house, I don't know how that happened, when they were little. And we'd, we'd do the exact same thing, right? we just help them when they're trying to, trying to walk. You know, and Renee would be on one area of the floor, and I would sit a little further away, and they would, they would kind of walk fall, right, to the other, and then back again, and toddling around. And then five seconds later, they're flying airplane. Don't know how that happened. But what a beautiful, just a, the bonds of love, it talks about those cords and those connections that God had for them. And, you know, we were probably a little bit overprotective. We even had you know, cushiony things on the edges of the coffee table or the, the end table. Whatever it may be, got to keep that, those precious ones from getting hurt and getting injured. And of course, we can see that that's what God was doing. And the response was not dissimilar to what we can have with our toddlers, right? The phrase in our house was, me do. Don't do it for me. Don't help me. Me do. And there's some element of that that's good. But in Israel's case, they rejected God. They rejected the one that brought them out of Egypt, taught them to walk. I mean, these people were literally so ignorant. They were enslaved. They had to be told where to put their hoop, right? Don't do it in the camp. They had to be told where to dig, a, you know, a pit to put all their trash in. They, they, they need to be just taught how to live, like a toddler, like a child. And God did this for them, and he rejected He shall not return to the lands of Egypt, he says, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refused to repent, and the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, consume them, because of their own counsel. My people are bent on backsliding from me, though they call to the Most High, none exalt him so what does God do? Well, he does what sometimes we do as parents, right? Okay, I'll let, you, I'll let you try and do that. And then when they hurt themselves, not too badly. When they get frustrated, things don't work out the way that they thought, it's a life lesson, right? And a lesson by experience. And that's, that's what we see with God's interaction with Israel. Let's them fall into, well, to us it would seem pretty extreme. But as a nation, as a child, he lets some of them die. He lets some of them perish because of famine. Because, you know, the Philistines keep coming in and taking all their food. He lets some of their cities get attacked and destroyed. And then, of course, ultimately, they are carried back. Into captivity, into slavery. And all because they wanted to bow down to everything else other than God. Because they wanted to place everything else that was available in the place where God should be. Does any of this sound familiar? I mean, we can certainly see that in our society, can't we? We can certainly see that approach happening in society, and we see the consequences. But what about us, individually? What are the things that we put ahead of God? What are our idols? We might not burn incense to carved images today in our modern age. We're more sophisticated than that. Right, But we can easily offer our heart and our mind to things that do not satisfy. The things that we're looking to for comfort, security, health, whatever it may be, and it is not God. Things that don't have the power to help us or heal us. We're all different. We're all different, so we might all have our own specific false god that is so easily worshipped. Perhaps it's bowing down to the false gods of religiosity. Curtis, I think, talked about this a few weeks ago, of self-righteousness, of practicing a certain way. We can even make our faith an idol. Well, I am this because I do that. I am righteous because of what I do and the things that I practice. And the others, well, they're not righteous because they don't practice the way that I do. Jesus had a response to that exact same attitude in Matthew 23, verse 13. He gives us a warning. He says, I mean, he's, he's going hard against the Pharisees, but, but for us, watching this interaction, it's a warning for us of how we are conducting ourselves in our faith and maybe our own self-righteousness. He says, "But woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who who are entering to go to go in." In other words, you want to control who goes to the kingdom You think that you can decide who is a saint of God and who isn't and who goes into that kingdom. And that's a dangerous place to be. That is a very dangerous place to be. But we don't do that today, do we? Of course we, we can do that. Maybe you don't, but somebody else might. It is an idol. It is something that distracts us. And at the core, it's about ourselves and about how we can save ourselves by doing the right thing instead of following God. He goes on to say in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. You've you got all the law down. You've got all the practices down, but you're missing As he goes on to say, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faith. So think about that. If following the practices of tithing, tithing to the correct amount, you know what that isn't? think about that. Cuz Jesus contrasts it. He says those things they are good to do and they are appropriate and they may be in the lo- they are in the law but it is not faith. And it is not mercy. And it's not even justice. Very powerful message for us. He said you ought to have done those things and not left these other things undone. Blind guides, who strain out at a gnat and swallow a camel. Can we do that? I think we do that all the time when we judge others, when we judge one another, when we have no idea about how God is working in someone else's life. I'm not talking about somebody that's living a life of (laughs) absolute sin. I'm not talking about the Corinthians that that we were talking about earlier, who are trying to come out of all the sexual immorality. Those are the good ones. The ones that are staying buried in that, okay, we can make a judgment about where they are in faith. But those that are trying and working with Christ Jesus, we need to be very careful about judging them. But there are other other ways in which we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, as Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. We do this through looking to material things instead of looking to God. Things that can heal us and comfort us. Instead of dealing with and bringing our troubles and our sorrows and our broken hearts to the Father, to Jesus, we turn to other things, we turn to addictions, to other people, to our own efforts, instead of going into the hard places and inviting the healing and the guiding hands of God. We need to remember that we are <laughs> we are these toddlers, aren't we? We feel like we get to a certain age. E- everybody remember when you were 15 years old, 16 years old? Some of you are there right now, so I apologize for the analogy. But, man, we knew what the world was about when we were 16 years old. Right? Not at all. And when we were 25, we, even, we knew even more. Some of you are laughing. And now that I'm 50 plus, I realized I didn't know anything. We're still toddlers. We need the guiding hand. We need the Father to hold us by the hand. Help us walk. Walk in that newness of life. And so there are many places, many ways, almost worse today, that we can offer incense to carved images of Baal. But how long does God allow punishment or correction to come on Israel? How long can he suffer it? Because suffer he does. Picking back up in Hosea chapter 11, verse 8, he says, how can I give you up, Ephraim, or Israel? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like uh, Adma? And how can I set you like Zeboim, I would say. Those two cities, they were part of the cities that were destroyed in the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. He like, said, I can't do that to you. I can't destroy you. You're my son. You're my precious child. He says, my heart churns within me. The idea that God's heart, you ever had your heart churned? When you're hurting for someone, or you're hurting over a situation, yeah, this is where we get it from. He has a heart that churns within him. My sympathy is stirred. He just, he can't stand it anymore. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. And we can say amen to that, right? We can say amen to that. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, then his son shall come trembling from the west, and they shall uh, tremble like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. I got this image in my mind when I read this. It's like it's kind of like a dad, right? Who lets his toddler kind of figure trying to figure out what he's doing, you know, or maybe his teenager and get himself into a little bit of trouble. And then finally he's like I've had enough. And he starts to raise his voice. And what does that do? An appropriate raised voice reminds the child who really who has the power, who has the wisdom, who is the authority to guide them, help them. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm sure I've never, I've not done this perfectly all the time, but I do remember times when I had to raise my voice. I've got two boisterous boys. Boys need voice raising sometimes. And when they were little, they didn't run in fear. They ran for comfort to me. That's the kind of voice raising that God is doing here. He's roaring to get our attention. And we don't like it. And we tremble. And we fall at his feet. And he picks us up like the children that we are and holds us close. And he reconciles with us. That's what the atonement is all about. That's what Christ came to do for us, to bring us to the Father that intimate, beautiful, father-son relationship. This passage in Hosea is telling, I I mentioned earlier, it's telling multiple stories at once. It's several layers that are going on here. First, we have the whole larger story of God's love for Israel, for these people that he called out of Egypt, that he he cared for as, as a son that he saved and carried them and taught, taught them and showed them how to walk and how to do things in life. And he planted them in a safe place. He gave them all that they needed and lived in the midst of them. He, he was present with them, in them. And yet, after one generation, we know. They just... <gasps> they were as bad as the people that were in the land before, almost. Turned to idols of their own making, and time and time again, God tried to teach them and show them and bring some suffering and the consequences of their own actions, and they still didn't listen. And then they were finally taken away by Assyria in 720, uh, 721 BC. But God has not done. And we can see that from Hosea, because he's not willing to tolerate the suffering to have anymore. He is going to redeem Israel. But this passage in Hosea is not just that level, but it's, it's also, it's not just about Israel, it is about us. Egypt, a symbol for sin, as we know, is this world. And where are we? <coughs> we are... <laughs> trapped in this world, in this Egypt. That's where we find ourselves, enslaved by the chains of our own making, as people, as humanity, enslaved in spiritual brokenness, brokenness in self-righteousness, in fear, in addictions, as I mentioned before, in, in fear, <laughs> emotional instability that causes tremendous relational damage. We're... There's so many things that we are enslaved by and trapped under. So much pain. But God, because of his abundant and overwhelming mercy, called us out of that bondage. So the second layer, out of slavery, as Peter refers to in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but you, you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, or his son, or his children, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but have obtained mercy. So that's layer two we are the church as the children of God we are his son he has called us out of Egypt called us out of darkness we're the ones that he set free lifted us on on eagle's wings and brought us into this marvelous light that's what he's done and how has he done that well he's done that through the third layer that we see in this chapter. And that third layer is Jesus Christ. goes all the way back to the beginning when he said, out of Egypt I have called my son. Yes, Jesus and his family fled to Egypt for a reason. In that moment, at that time, fleeing from Herod and from the evil that he was about to commit and did commit, as we know, in chasing after Jesus, in chasing after them, he murdered countless little babies and toddlers, destroying them and destroying the hearts of their parents. But the greatest story here that Hosea shows us is that Jesus came to this world. He wrapped our broken, sinful flesh around himself. He lived here amongst us as one of us. Entered the Egypt of the world and lived as that Holy One as God promised in Hosea. He lived in their midst, in our midst with us. The Apostle John puts it really beautifully, as we know, it's a very familiar passage in 1 in John, and beginning in verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and he was with, was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him and through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all through through him might believe. He was not the light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. That's what we see at the birth of Jesus. Right? That's what we see early part of his life. okay. We had a few people that knew about Jesus and they came to worship him. But the world, they didn't know where he was. They didn't know who he was. So much so they tried to cast a big net to kill him. And they missed. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Well, that's obvious. He came to Judah and they murdered countless little Jewish babies to try and kill him. They did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Sons and daughters, the children of God being called out of Egypt. And the word became flesh, it dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Beautiful passages. We never get tired of hearing that truth. So encouraging. That God is, didn't call you here by accident. He just said it's not by the will of man or of the flesh, not by any other means. You are called to be the children of God, by God, on purpose. And he brought us into his marvelous light. There's a further analogy in, in all of this, and, and, and I hope I'm making sense, but you know, Jesus came down to this earth, to this Egypt, came down to be with us, to live amongst us. He associated himself with us. Does it remind you of another story? It reminds me of Moses. And coming out of Egypt. Because here was Moses. He steps down from the royal palace, doesn't he? He steps down from this powerful position that he's in when he sees his people being abused. And what does he do? He takes one of those abusers, one of those oppressors, and he kills them. And then what happens? Well, he leaves. He leaves and he goes to the land of Midian. And he's there for a while, for a time, until something happens. Till God decides, I have work for you to do. I have the next phase of my plan for you to execute. And he sends him back to Egypt. Are you seeing a pattern there? We have Jesus Christ. We have the Son of God. Enters into this world. This Egypt. He lands here on this earth. He dwells amongst us. He came from the throne room of all creation. And he sees the oppressor oppressing his people. And what does he do? He kills the oppressor. And then he leaves for a little while. And we are, of course, all still waiting for the next phase of the plan. When, not Moses coming from Midian back to Egypt, but Jesus coming back to Egypt to do what? To call out God's Son from Egypt. To liberate us. To set us free. What is that oppressor? What is the oppressor that he came in the first place and destroyed? Well, I submit to you that it's Death. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He removed that pain, that sting of death. He removed its ability to kill us forever. We got this one little blip ahead of each one of us. That moment when we leave this earth and then we are awake in the resurrection. When we leave this world behind and then we step into the kingdom of God. All because... Jesus destroyed the power of the oppressor through his own sacrifice. And so after doing all of that, God calls him out of Egypt. Just like Moses left Midian. And then when the time was right, as I mentioned before, he sent Moses back. He is going to send Jesus back bring us back again out of the land where we've been scattered, where we've been pushed by the oppressor. The Father will turn to Jesus. Can you imagine that moment? The Father is turning to Jesus and said, it's time. Go. Set my people free. We pray for that. We long that moment. Please, God, let that moment be soon. Let that be soon. The Apostle John captured that moment just as Jesus promised he would when he said to Peter, what is it to you that he'll see me coming in clouds of glory? And he did in vision. He saw it. In Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 he says, Now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse And he who sat on him him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had the name written that no one knew but himself. He was clothed with the robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Just imagine that vision, that what he saw Imagine seeing it, not the prequel, but the reality. This is going to happen. And the armies of heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God, he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. (laughs) Can we have that soon? Can Jesus please return soon? We pray for that. In the meantime, let's pray for one another. Let's pray for one another, God, that God will continue to guard us. Watch over us. Support each one of us. Help us to support one another. Help us to walk through this land of sin. Help us to be those obedient children who will take his hand and walk alongside our Father. Let's pray for one another that we can do that. As Peter said so powerfully in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. It's critical that living in this world, in this age, living in Egypt, in sin, we have to accept that God cares for us, that we can cast our cares on him, He is our Father, a loving Father that takes us by the hand. Let's be humble. Let's not think, me do. Let's not think that we're all grown up. We are not. We are still, in many ways, waiting to be born. Let's humble ourselves, for he cares for us. Be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brothers in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to an eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, there will be suffering. But after that Small moment of suffering he will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle each one of them in that kingdom, in his kingdom, prepared for us. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.